Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Those who answer the call and risk it all for the safety and well-being of others deserve someone willing to give their all in return. Conway Shield is built on the shoulders of three service legacies. Customizing the nation's very best firefighting shields has expanded to providing the most effective technology, tools, and training for today's fire and law leaders. Learn more at ConwayShield.com. Welcome to the Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Jim McNamara. Our guest in this episode is Deputy Chief Jim Ginty. Chief Ginty is a 37-year member of the FDNY, assigned as a probie to Engine 43 and Ladder 59 in 1984 to the war-ravaged Bronx. Upon promotion to lieutenant, an assignment to Ladder 28 in Harlem. As a captain, he served in Ladder 147 in Flatbush, Brooklyn. Upon yet another promotion, Chief Ginty returned to Harlem in Battalion 1-2. Chief Ginty capped his career with one final promotion to Deputy Chief of the Special Operations Command of the FDNY. In addition, Chief Ginty has been instrumental in the development and execution of the FDNY's Mental Performance Initiative. If that were enough, Chief Ginty is intimately involved in the Fire Family Transport Program, which obtains vehicles for use for sick and injured firefighters and their families. Chief, welcome. Thank you. Chief, we'll start right from the top. Can you share with our listeners the story of your background? Uh, yes, I, uh, I was born in the Bronx, and shortly uh, thereafter, maybe when I was young, we moved out to Long Island, to Smithtown, Long Island. I have uh, five brothers and sisters. Uh, my parents are first-generation uh, Irish-Americans, very proud of their Irish uh, heritage and also proud of being Americans. And uh, thankfully for me, I'm still, we're very close, me, my five brothers and sisters. And uh, I think I'm very fortunate when I think about that, you know, and I think a lot that has to do with my uh, parents. You know, they really instilled in us, like, you know, inside the house, you were allowed to kill each other. But when you went outside, everybody <laughs> was on the same team, you know, and... Uh, and to this day, we're very close. And uh, growing up in Smithtown, you know, I remember originally when we moved, it was a little like, ah, uh, you know, we can't believe we're moving. It was a great place to grow up. You know, uh, there was every all young families moving out of the city, a lot of kids. We had a park with a handball court and basketball courts around the block. You know, you'd leave the house at 9 in the morning, you wouldn't come back till dinner. You know, it was just a great way to, to grow up. When I think back, like my grandparents lived down the road, like my father's father was one of 16, you know, when he immigrated here. And just the, how different it must be now when you think about it. When they came here, they knew they were never going back, you know. And he was really a, very proud to be here in America. You know, he worked for Con, he wound up getting a job at Con Ed and worked there for 44 years, you know. And actually, in my father's family, both his brothers were also firefighters at one time or another, you know, and uh, so it kind of was inbred in us coming, uh, growing up, but it was, uh, I had a, a real good childhood. And of course, no discussion of the Ginty family would be complete without a full examination of your legendary dad. Yeah, my father was a, uh, you know, he was a uh, former Marine, a Korean War veteran, uh, he got on the fire department around 1957, I think he got on. And in 1962, he was one of the original uh, charter members of the New York City Fire Department Emerald Society pipe band, you know. Uh, he worked in the same firehouse in the South Bronx through the war years for, uh, I think, up close to 35 years. Not too many guys lasted that long. 
You know, when he worked, uh, he started out in squad two, then he went to the TCU, which was a special unit of like a floor above team that worked like kind of crazy hours. And then he wound up in 42 truck, the, the Casa Elefante, where kind of interesting, he was about five foot seven. Everybody else in the company was about uh, six foot five, 300 pounds. And that's how they got the nickname. Uh, he was a, uh, he was quite a character, to say the least. He had, uh, he always worked two jobs. We had a, uh, he was a window washer on the side. And all of us uh, knew about it. Uh, we all were window washers at one point or another, me and my brothers. And I can remember he kind of knew who the last guy in was, in at night was. And that guy got the shake at five in the morning to go up and go to work, you know. And, uh, oh, take Mike, take Pat, you know. We learned our work ethic, I think, from him. And all of us, you know, I have a brother who's on the job. He's uh, also, he's a battalion chief, my brother Patrick. I have a uh, brother-in-law. I got two nephews who are now EMTs. My both uncles, Tom and Jack, were both the firefighters. You know, it's, uh, it's definitely the family business in a way. You know, I kind of get sometimes I think about, like they talk about nepotism. But if you look at most of the guys I grew up with, you know, almost at least one of their family is in the same profession as their father, you know, like whether it's a plumber, electrician, a doctor, a dentist, whatever it might be. And I think that's true today with the, uh, you know, whether it's a, a police officer, a firefighter, whatever you might have. Uh, but my father, uh, he had quite a few citations for bravery. He worked, uh, he worked, like I said, a long time in that area. Like I always, we always kind of joke around, like my father started the band, he's a legendary firefighter. And me and my brother look like, you know, I have two safety messages. You know, I got my foot crushed in an aerial <laughs> ladder. I got blown up by a manhole cover. You know, my brother was in a serious accident in Brooklyn uh, where a rig went into a building. You know, but he, luckily we all survived and were able to work. My brother's still active. But it was, it certainly had its advantages, the, being the, the son of Jim Ginty when you came on the job. True. And you talk about... Uh the Irish being cops and firemen, it was part of the experience growing up, and it was oftentimes the only job they could get. Yeah. You know, and, and they, uh, it, certainly in this city, Boston would probably be the same, Chicago, you know, the Irish, you know, right. migrated to these jobs. I think, too, I think civil service, like, you know, being what they lived through in Ireland, you know, even prior to when my, my grandparents came over in the 20s, like late 20s, but even before that, I think security meant a lot to them, you yeah. know, like, and I think you knew like you were going to get a paycheck if you got a job in civil service. And I, and I think that's the way, you know, like growing up, uh, you know, I'd say most of my fathers, you know, they, they were cops, firemen, priests, uh, in jail, you know, <laughs> whatever, you know, cause they do, they all grew up, uh, you know, he grew up in the South Bronx, both him and my mother, you know, and it was an Irish ghetto then, you know, and, uh, and everyone, you know, and it's funny just how you see, like probably my grandparents, most of their friends, you know, we're Irish, you know, and as, as we get further and further away from all, we all, we all kind of just blend in, you know, and it's really, uh, that's what's great about uh, New York. Yeah. And so you get on the job and you're in Proby School in 84. What was Proby School like back then? Proby School back then was a lot different than it is today. First, it was only six weeks, you know, when you went in. I, I was coming from the corrections department. I was a civilian with corrections before I became a firefighter. It was one of the, I had a couple of jobs before I became a, uh, got on the job. I went to college. I was probably one of the, I think I may have been the first Ginty to go to college, you know. And uh, when I got out, I had worked the summers in Entenmann's Bakery, 
and I continued working there. It was it's actually kind of funny when I think about it. In 1981, the economy was a lot like it is now. You know, it was hard to get a job, so I was still being a sanatory with my bachelor of science degree in management science in Entenmann's. Then I got a job with Merrill Lynch, starting basically at minimum wage as a, uh, a clerk. And then I got this opportunity to go work in corrections in their labor relations department, which was one of my minors in college. And I worked with this guy, Bill Lewis, and it was a great experience. And I did that for two years. And it's funny, my father never pushed to like going into the fire department, you know. But once he knew that I wanted to, he was, you know, he was more than he was thrilled, you know. And uh, so when I when we went to Proby School, uh, like to me, I really didn't. I'm like, this is what I want to do. This was not. I didn't think it was that demanding, you know. And I was in. I would believe it. Or not, I was in the last class off of my list. So we had, you know, we would a cream rises to the top, last but not least. We had all these sayings. But uh, I was pretty fit. I was a young guy at the time. So the, that part of it, doing push-ups, the, it was not the runs that they do now. And it was different. The job was different. You know, you didn't. Yeah. You had 30-minute cylinders. Most of the guys in the trucks didn't wear boots. They just wore regular shoes. I mean, you could really move. There wasn't, you didn't have to be as fit as you are now. And most of the stuff that you learned, you, you know, you might have started a sword, did a couple of things. I was good at marching by the end. You did a little marching around. But you really, you know, the, your education really began when you got to the firehouse. Yeah. And, uh, and as different today where you're doing 18 weeks in full bunker gear, I think the job has just changed. You know, I, I, when I talk to old timers sometimes, I say the job is harder now than it was back in the early 80s because when you think about it in the 80s, first of all, you had to let less gear. You had to know less. You know, now you have to know hazmat, CFRD, uh, terrorism. There's just a lot more to know than when I came on the fire department. And the amount of equipment that they're carrying between rabbit tools and extra roll-ups and all. And, and plus, I was in a five-man engine. Now, I still think the majority of your engines are four-man engines. Yes. So it was just a, it, it was a lot different. So you have, today, I think you have to be more fit when you're carrying 100 pounds and wearing the bunker gear, particularly in the summer. And it's funny when I think like the old timers when I came on wanted the winters off because you didn't want to be in a bucket or soaking wet in your gear on, in the winter. And now it's the summer because it's where, like wearing a snowsuit in the winter, you know. But uh, I, when I look in, plus it was certainly busier in the early 80s than it is now fire duty wise, not, not with runs and stuff like that. So if you screwed up at a fire, you kind of had the opportunity to redeem yourself pretty quickly. And I think there's additional pressure on guys now because even in the busier companies, depending on where you're working, it could be a while before you have that opportunity to kind of to redeem yourself, you know? True. So you get out and you're assigned to 43 and, and, and 59 in the Bronx. What was the Bronx like? Paint a picture for, for, for listeners outside of New York. What was the Bronx like in that time period? Well, it was in the middle of the crack epidemic at the time. So... If you think back, it was, I, I think at the time, there was like 2,000 murders a year. It was kind of everywhere you looked, there was, the vacants were everywhere. Where I worked was never the South Bronx until after the South Bronx burnt down. Then it was kind of anything south of Fordham Road. But the work had moved, had migrated from the South Bronx to the West Bronx. And that's where, and we had a lot of big H-type buildings. But it was still, I would say, half our district was probably vacant at the time, so it was a great opportunity to learn the job. You know, I remember one of the members in, uh, when he transferred to 59 from another company in the Bronx, from the South Bronx, John Calamari, sure. who was your lieutenant. Yeah. 
you know, his uh, his line was, uh, <laughs> people say, like, what are you transferring for? And he goes, better quality vacants. <laughs> you know, so it was uh, it was definitely an interesting time. Very busy. We In the beginning, we did a lot of running, too. Again, even that running was different because we still had pull boxes when I first got there. And the running was different because you'd go, like, up Jerome Avenue, go into 10 boxes. You know, one guy would pull a box, or you'd go back to the same box. Some screwball was kept hitting the, hitting the box. But... You never, the only guy who got off the rig was the probie to reset the box. Where now, like every box that these guys are going on, 7,000 runs a year, they're getting off the rig. Yes. You yes. know, so it's, and, and, they ha and bunker gear, you know, which makes it more difficult. And in 43 and 59, who are the guys that, that you looked up to? Well, 43, I started in 43 engine, and, you know, it's, I, I don't want to offend anybody because there were so many people in my career that I, had an impact. And I think, you, you know, I took away something from everyone. You know, I, I like to think that. And, you know, and I hope, you know, I don't offend anybody. If I leave you out, uh, don't take it personal, you know. But uh, when I first got there, I had, uh, first of all, Captain Percivali was the captain there. And he was a, he was a great captain. Like, so you, when uh, you would have probed me there, being a five-man five engine, you would go, you would have the nozzle for, I think, six months or a year, and the senior man backed you up who I, lucky for me, was this guy, John Como, who was one of the nicest, the strongest, nicest person you'd ever want to meet in your life. Like, he would just, you know, no matter what you did, he would tell you the greatest thing on earth. And he, we, he really took a liking to me, which made things <laughs> a, a little, much easier for me. But uh, Captain Percivali, who wound up Chief Percivali, Herbie, was a, uh, if you, when you were to probe on every run, you went with him. So you went, like, and now you really couldn't do that with four-man engine companies, but you actually went with him to gas leaks, food on the stoves, anything, like, and if it turned out that you had a job, they would stretch the line, hand you the nozzle, you'd be fresh and being able to move into the, into the fire, you know? So to my first year, I learned, in a way, you learned, like, you had an incinerator. Guys used to carry, like, the little can of gas, like, to burn off. And I know we don't have incinerators anymore, but, you know, you watch this, how to compact the fires when a lot of times you might not stretch a line you might but you were learning every time and like you know and i and you had to take that opportunity i had an, another guy when i got to the truck and he told me right away is try to take away a nugget every day you know even if it's one simple thing and with with captain percivali you had that opportunity and i had two great senior men there like john como who was like i said everyone loved him but Guys used to jump them in the firehouse, like as a joke. And uh, some big guys, they couldn't. He would just hold them. And it was, like, <laughs> it, it was just amazing. He was a construction guy. He just, but he knew, and he, but as a fireman, he knew every box. He knew where the hydrants were. He knew everything. You know, I mean, he was just a spectacular senior man. And we had this other guy, Bill Maynard, who was Nick the Sugar Bowl Bill. Because <laughs> if you put the bowl was empty and you would approve it, he'd smash it, you know. But uh, he was with, between those two guys, Herbie Percivali. Then I had uh, the officers there too. Every one of them was outstanding. You know, I had uh, Richie Goldstein, who just uh, recently passed away, was just the epitome of calm, like a small, you know, not a big man or anything, but just a, a tough guy, but very funny. You know, I had him. Jimmy Brown Eisen was a, a complete character, you know, and uh, also a great fireman, you know. And you, and like I said, you picked up from each one. Uh, then even after after that, Dennis Stack, who actually lost his brother at 9-11, was the captain of 43 when I was in 59. And he was, you know, he just he kind of took me under his wing before I got promoted and gave me a lot of information. And I think he actually, he was a fireman at 69 Engine. I think he put a good word in for me there, too, when I got promoted, you know. But... 
So I, I just had, I was very fortunate when I first came on the job. I know I'm leaving guys out, like Frankie Salmon, who was like a great nozzle man, but also a real character, and one of the funniest people I've ever met in my life. Oh, there's so many good guys that fire. Sure. I was really uh, fortunate to get assigned there. Sure. And then you get promoted and... <laughs> well, I went to the truck then. Let me go. Okay. I, I just talked about the engine. So okay. now I go to the 59 truck where uh, you had uh, Captain Anello. Uh, Tommy Anello was the captain. Uh, Frank Pampalone, Billy Spinelli, you know, all unbelievable yeah. guys, you know, and uh, all of them calm, like at a fire. Like that was the one thing I always admired. Like I said, I'm going to be like that. And I don't, you know, in the meantime, you're hard. I remember the first job I had in the engine, you know, uh, John Como's backing me up. I'm going in. It's a, I think I had my eye shields down. My boots pulled up as we ran. I was, my heart rate was probably a thousand. And uh, I remember going in, knocking down the first room, and he's just going, "You got this." And by the end, he was dragging me in, spinning the nozzle. I was, I couldn't believe how tired I got so quick. And now looking back at the MPI stuff, my heart rate probably was two thousand. Sure. You know? But uh, when I got to the truck, uh, first it was a. Uh, Lieutenant Pamplon, Frank Pamplon. Now, I knew Pamplon had worked with my father, and I played basketball with his son for a while. And uh, so I knew him beforehand. So you're walking into the firehouse. You know, this is even before I got there, when I first got there. I'm a nervous wreck. You're walking in. You got your cake and everything. And I see him in the kitchen. You know, they walk me back there. They're all breaking your chops. And, and I go, uh, hey, how you doing, Mr. Pamplon? And the guy's pissed the Pamplon. <laughs> and I go, this isn't a good start, you know. But... Uh, when I got to the truck, again, it was just a, a great, I had a great senior men, uh, John Gole, he was a Vietnam vet, just, he, he was the one who told me about, the, you know, gave me a nugget every day, just really into the job. They had, I had John Calamari, Jimmy Zodowick, there was a, John, myself, Jimmy Zodowick, and uh, Jimmy McGowan, that was our study group when uh, we started studying. And, uh, you know, all of us actually got, you know, wound up getting promoted at one time or another. Like, uh, Zadowick wound up in 44 truck. Uh, John wound up being your lieutenant yeah. at 26, and then yeah. captain at 120 for a long period of time. Uh, Jimmy McGowan is actually now, he went into the union, and he's, uh, I think he's with the Prof New York Professional Firefighters Association, a uh, big shot up there. So everyone did very well. And then when we first started our study group, no one really expected that to be the case, but uh, <laughs> we surprised everyone. And uh, like I said, uh, from Pampalone to Anello to Billy Spinelli, another like legendary guy in, in the, that part of the Bronx, we just had just great people. John Williamson was, I remember he gave me the advice when they had canceled the test, God rest his soul, he was one of the guys killed on 9-11. And he said, when you're studying, he goes, every time you hear a rumor or they're canceling the test for a while, just keep studying. And I think that, like, instead of studying for two years, I probably studied for closer to four. And I think that carried me through all my promotions, you know. But uh, it was just Bobby Winkler. They were just so – Patty Kincannon, who was the original member of uh, – started the Fire Family Transport. And back when he was a lieutenant over in 111, he was just – you learned every day. And there was a lot of opportunity to learn. Like, where guys – like, when you went, there was so many vacants. Like, before I even got to the truck, I probably cut – a couple of dozen roofs just in practicing, you know, where these guys just don't have the opportunities like yeah. we did back then, you know, to, to learn. And the experience of the guys passing that down to you was even better, you know. Do you think those guys were born this way to be this great or were they a product of the environment? I think probably along the way for them, they, like I'm saying, I saw them staying calm. They probably saw someone staying calm. 
we saw how they did it. You know, when you, anybody played sports, right? You're taking a foul shot, take a deep breath, you know, whatever it might be. So I think they watched people before them do it, and they did it. But now with the MPI, I think we see the science behind it. And I think that really, for me, was kind of eye-opening. Eye you know, and I think, all right, now this makes sense. You, you know, now I know why, you, know, why you, you, did, you did certain things. I mean, even you did it without really thinking about it. But, like, I know I said to myself, on occasion, I could hear myself, like, going up a little. And I go, right, let me take a walk, step back here and, and relook at this or whatever it might be. But I never wanted to be a, a screamer. But I also now, and I don't think I ever was, you know, I think we can be less judgmental. You know, where back in the, oh, listen to this guy, you know, on the radio or whatever it might be. Now you're saying, well, you know, he did ask for water six times. You know, <laughs> he, might, he might, his eyes, you know, his head might be melting up there, you know. <laughs> Who knows? But, uh, I mean, I really did learn a lot when I went to 42. That was probably the busiest uh, almost 10 years of my career, like when I first went. And granted, the majority of it was, was in vacant buildings. But when you drove around, like, you know, I don't know we went to some... Uh, Back to the files one day, and I was looking. It's like almost every building. They're all redone now. You're saying, I remember going there. I remember going there. And just, it, like I said, there wasn't, there wasn't a weak link in that company. And there was expectations, unspoken, but you knew, like, you know, you had to do your part. You know, between the running and the fire duty, you know, we had uh, another great guy, uh, Mike Finer, who wound up being uh, what he overcame over the, the course of his, with just medical things and everything else. He's just in the extraordinary guy, but he was another guy, all all in on everything. Bobby Winkler. I mean, it's just so... I, I'm Kevin Flanagan, another legendary you know, I, guy. Yeah. You know, we were lieutenants together, too, you know, and uh, just great people. And, and not just good flymen, but I think they were really generally good people. They always... And I think, you know, it got instilled in me growing up, like, you know, work ethic, but I think doing the right thing, that's always been kind of a theme that I think, to, if you think that way, you're going to be okay on this job. You know, like I, kind of when I was growing up, going back a little bit, I remember my father in the different words probably just said, "This life's pretty easy if you do three things." And first of all, he always said, "There's always somebody worse off than you." You know, when you start feeling sorry for yourself, so there wasn't a lot of sympathy in the Ginty house growing <laughs> up. You know, like it was a lot of suck it up. But uh, but he always said, if you work hard, you know, you appreciate what you have, and money's not everything. And he said, and just be nice. And for the most part, and my father was, you know, I, I think, like, I don't know, you can describe him. He was tough as nails, but he wasn't a tough guy. Like, he never gave that persona, like, you know, you know, I'm going to bury you. or You know, and plus he was five foot seven. He wasn't, <laughs> but, but he was tough. You know, I mean, I, the injuries and everything he fought through, you know, he didn't have it easy. But he was, uh, and he worked as hard as anyone I've ever seen. You know? True. Part of the greatest generation. Yeah. Yeah. I remember, it's funny, we're doing a windy job. I know. I guess I first got. I'm in the truck because I remember I had the harness. We had come. We had gotten the personal harnesses, and my father was still on the job. He was, you know, down a 42 truck, and uh, he has a big window job on the uh, in a in a house, like you know, somewhere on the water. Beautiful house. I remember doing it. it was a, you know, it was, a, it was an all day job. So yeah, can you give me a hand? He goes, they want to do the skylights. Bring your personal harness. You know, <laughs> violation of the rules, of course. <laughs> So I said, all right, no problem. We get out there. It's like a 90-degree day. We're doing the inside. Now we're up on these. It's like a round. It's a beautiful home. And we're doing the skylights. And I'm tied off to the chimney. And I'm lowering my father to wash these things. He's probably <laughs> in his mid-50s at the time. And I remember him looking up, going, are you going to study? And I remember saying, I'm not doing this when I'm 55 years old. You know, And I think that was one of my incentives to study. That's great. You know, but, That's great. Uh, 
So you, you get promoted and then you end up in 28 truck in Harlem. Now, what was that experience like moving into a, a really a legendary truck company? I was fortunate. I had originally, when I got promoted, I was assigned to Brooklyn, uh, the 12th Division, and uh, I think 4-8 Battalion, which is kind of a funny story, too. I was hoping to go to the 5th Division. That's where everyone wanted to go. To. It was in the 6th and the 7th, but at the time, there was no, no contracts, you know, so I went there. I was there for about six months, and I, I remember I was saying to myself, like, I had just bought a house out on Long Island, you know, and I didn't mention that, my, my lo- the lovely Joan and... Uh, <laughs> My two daughters, who really, you know, when I look back on everything, we should, when I was talking about my family, they're really the light of my life. I mean, my uh, wife is a, uh, a doctor of nursing, teaches at Malloy College. She started in Sloan Kettering, and that's when I met her. You know, we met on a cruise, the love boat, you know, but uh, that's where a nurse didn't want me to find at the time, <laughs> but we did meet, you know. And actually, another guy I was with met another girl, and we both married the girls we met on a cruise, you know, but... Uh, and we have two great daughters, and both of them followed their mother's footsteps, and both of them are nurses, one at Sloan and one at NYU in the uh, cardiac pediatric ICU unit. Pretty amazing stuff. Both of them are uh, spectacular. So I'm, I'm glad I, did, I got back that. You know, <laughs> when the, uh, the, now you got to go back to what we were talking about. Oh, going to uh, 28 trucks. So I was assigned to the 12th Division. Believe it or not, I got transferred back to the 12th Battalion. And now... Uh, you know, my first tour, I had a, a wedding that I was supposed to work. And I call up, and I did know the aide in the 6th Division. He goes, Jim, you know, Tommy Armstrong, who was a lieutenant at 28, just tapped out. He's only going to be out for a week, but if I put you there, can you work Sunday? I said, yeah, no problem. And I wound up being there for like a month and not a week, and I caught a, a couple of good jobs. So that part of it, you know, I kind of, and I had caught a couple of jobs in Brooklyn too. So, you know, even I was in the busiest section, so I kind of was – a little bit more comfortable that part. It's the other part where you're going into a firehouse with some real senior guys. I was a young lieutenant. You know, they treated you. It didn't matter to them. Like there was a class, there was a class, there were a class act there. And as long as you were doing what you're supposed to do, they really didn't have any problems with you. You know, you had a, and they had a real tradition there of drilling. And that was from Bobby Morris, of yeah. course, you know. And so after that time, I was, when I was UFO there, Anytime there was an opening in 69 or 28, they would request me for the UFO spot. So I probably spent most of my covering time, like not maybe half, but maybe a third of it anyway, in 69 or 28. And then when, you know, then I wound up in a UFO spot in 69 and a spot opened in 28. But again, I worked with some incredible people there. And the fact that Morris, I knew Bobby, Captain Morris was... uh, a lieutenant 42 engine who we ran in with when I was in 4359. Then he went to 44 truck. I knew him from the Bronx and he worked with my father. And I kind of thought I was a good fit there. And it was a real, every day I learned that. And if you did have a problem, you just had to tell Bobby Morris and he would figure it out, especially when it came to forcible entry. Yeah. And I had a guy, my, uh, the senior, one of the senior guys there, John Farrakha, who was a uh, kind of in that area was a real legendary guy. Yeah. He was a uh, ranger in Vietnam. He was always 10 steps ahead of everybody else. And I think, you know, quietly he kind of took me under his wing and always gave me great advice, you know. And when I got the spot, he was in the other groups. We always wound up talking, and, you know, he always liked kind of coming up. We'd speak. He'd go over things, teach, you know, say, you think about this, you think about that. And sometimes even say, you know, 
you're going to have to tell that guy something, you know, or you're going to have to talk to that lieutenant or any other company just where, you know, that the confrontation thing really wasn't my, uh, <laughs> you know, that's when I, that was the part that, you know, and I think it's the hard part with anyone. Once in a while, you got to tighten somebody up and it's always not uh, that easy, but it's, it does make it easier when the senior, one of the senior guys is telling you, Hey, you got you know, you're going to have to say something or, and you, you know, I take a breath, I go say, Hey, bring so-and-so to the office. And it wasn't most of the time, I think, you know, particularly with firemen, I think my discipline was like, really? You thought that was a good idea? You know? <laughs> and that usually, nah, I, I don't do it again. You know? And for the most part, guys, they don't make the same mistake twice. Right. You know? And I think that's why, and I think being an officer, like, it's not just a cliche. Like, when you say, they say take care of the men, sometimes you're protecting the men from the men. But at the other end, when the men take care of you, my whole career, the men took care of me. You know, like, you know, people could say, oh, you did this, you did that, but you know, if it wasn't for the, all the people around me, I, you know, I wouldn't have been as successful as I was on the fire department. And that goes from when I was a fireman in 43, which was, you know, there was a lot of guys studying there, so it was a good example. You know, and all along, guys give me a little, yeah, you should really keep studying because you, you could get comfortable. 28, like I, remember, I was in a tub of butter, man. I was in a great firehouse. I was going to fires. I was with great people there, like, you know, like Bobby Morris, Rocco. I mean, the lieutenants, Carberry, myself, and Kevin Flanagan. I mean, it was a real special time. And then in the engine, it was the same. You know, you had John Newell was there when I first yeah. got there. Patty Brown, who's a legendary guy, who, you know, everyone's probably heard of, who got killed on 9-11, was the epitome of a class act. You know, young lieutenant. So between how fortunate was I to be in a firehouse where you had Patty Brown and, and Bobby Morris. I mean, I was really... A very, very lucky guy. You and know. you had the 27 Yankees upstairs in Kennedy, Cassidy, Griffin, Mc yes, McKnight. Yes, McKnight, really. We <laughs> had, uh, it was, and you learned, like, you know, there was expectations. I remember Chief Kennedy saying, like, all right, I want you to do a drill today, you know. And you go, and you're looking at your groups, and you did maybe the junior guy working. And I said, well, we had a brownstone last night. No, 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 I want you to do it in the kitchen, you know. And one of the guys would say, don't worry, just start. And, and Chief Kennedy's going to jump in and we'll really learn stuff, you know. And, and he was a brilliant guy. Yes. Bernie, uh, Bernie Cassidy, uh, Chief Cassidy was just unbelievable, you know. And Griffin was like one of the ultimate characters on the fire department. <laughs> Another guy who worked, he worked, uh, he was in squad two with my father. Yeah. And uh, he, I remember one time he had a picture of the, the bread wagon that squad two had. And it looked really old to me, like a 1940s car, you know. So I said, is that like the original squad too, you know? And he's like, you jackass. <laughs> this is the one, you know. And and he gave me out when I was get, getting promoted and he found out I was putting in for the 15th in Brooklyn. He was he was hammering me. Sure. You know? What are you going to Brooklyn? Stay where you are, you know. But the, I had that all, even like uh, Brown, I was talking about Jimmy Brown Eyes and I know I'm going back and forth. I hope I don't screw this up. No, but, that's okay. But Brown Eyes and on my transfer when I, you know, they asked me to come to the truck. I put my paper in, and uh, on the back of the paper, he writes, uh, "Stay where you are, jackass." You know, <laughs> and uh, and I, you know, I just think back, and even Griffin. I remember on one, I think it was Carberry's paper when he put it in. He put, uh, you know, he's a. We'll see what we can do with him. He's a fireman from Brooklyn, but he's the best of a tainted lot. That's what he wrote on the. You know, he didn't send that one in. But like Carberry's looking at it, like, is he really sending this? You know, there were so many good guys in everywhere I worked. You know, just to fly him in there too. I had Tommy Grimshaw and uh, yes. Jimmy Cody, who actually wound yeah. up, they were my chauffeurs, yeah. outstanding. Uh, Mike Hayes wanted to, you know, wound up being big with the ropes and everything. Yeah. And the PSS, he, he was just a great person to work for. I had 
Michael Porter, uh, Eddie Antalone, another. Eddie the dog. The dog, man. (laughs) Fireman Ed, whatever you want to call him. I know people, but he was one of the greatest guys to work for. Like, I have to say, like, every day I came to work, I left. You know, and I think firemen are born the funniest guys on earth. You know, and you, you laugh every day. And then, and even when you're bouncing, like I was saying before, like when you move going from place to place, I used to say, and, and you know, guys break my chops because particularly as a chief, I didn't really bounce at all. You know? <laughs> I went for, for about a month. But when I, I would, you know, you'd be in your house and they go, oh, you're going to Staten Island. I'm like I wasn't cheering because, you know, it's going to take you a while to get there, even though I live right on the Queens border. But, uh, you know, I'd say, ah, you know what? And my, as I'm driving there, after I got over the initial shock, I would say, ah, you know, you're going to make a new friend tonight. And, you know, you really did when you think about it. I know guys came up to me years later and said, I don't know if you remember, my first job as a lieutenant was in 239 engine in Brooklyn. And I remember, like, you know, going there, I said, I smell something, you know, in the show. Oh, we get a, a, a barrel over by Pathmark. We turn the cords of a frame roaring, you know. <laughs> and I got a probe on a nozzle. When I called the, uh, I called, uh, I go to the guy, what company is this? I, I've been, you know, when I look and he's 239, I go 239 to the Bronx. You know, and they, and they, the, the chief after the fire says, uh, you know, I go, you? He goes, were you flying in the Bronx? I go, yeah. And he says, uh, you know, you're in Brooklyn now. You know? And they go, I, go, I didn't call the Bronx today. And everybody was telling me you sure, know, sure. that I did. But, uh, you know, and the probe he didn't, you know, he was on a nozzle. We walked right through. It was a walk in the park fire. It was vented. And, uh, he, you know, came up to you, know, you were my the, the officer the first, and I don't really, I didn't really recognize him, you know, but things like that have happened a couple of times over my career where people come up to you and say, you know, you remember that job and sure. whatever it is. And, uh, but I thought that was, like, there's no job where you have as many friends as you do now. You know, like, especially when you start getting promoted, you're bouncing around, like, even, like, now with guys getting sick and, you know, passing, you know, like, and with, you see, and, like, people say to me, oh, you seem to go to a lot of wakes. And I'm like, well, I don't know if it's any, we have a lot of friends. You, you know, even if you're in the same firehouse, when as, if you're there for 20 years, you're meeting, if you took about the whole battalion, you're talking about a hundred, over 200 guys probably yeah. that you're going to run into on a regular basis that you'd consider friends. You know, and that's, I mean, it really is. Like, I can't say enough about being a fireman, you know. Yeah, and just one other thing on the lieutenant's rank. If you were going to offer some advice to a young lieutenant, right, just one or two things, what would you... Uh, what would you offer? I think in some ways, you know, you come in almost as a probie when you're walking into a firehouse. You know, you have to be confident, know what you're doing. I mean, I think that's be knowledgeable. And don't be afraid to, like, if you're going to do a drill or something, like, you know, hey, what are you drilling on? What do you want to drill on today? Talk to the senior guy and look it up. Whenever I did a drill, I would always, you know, I had notes. I, 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 when I went around, if I seen somebody had, you know, something that seemed interesting, I made copies of it. You know, and I had my own little note, you know, and I'd put my stuff out and I'd always write like five, maybe 10 things down on a piece of paper and I'd stick it in my pocket. And when they, when the time came for the drill, whether it was I was doing a drill or a senior guy, like I would just kind of check off. All right, we hit this point, we hit that point. And if you know one thing that might just get guys' attention, like I remember one time doing a life-saving rope drill and I said, you know, and I got it from Fraco. Like they say, you keep one, I know it's different now, but you put one foot on the on the hook end of the life saving rope. But if you're going to put the, if you're going to step into the on it, into the uh, bowling on a bite, if you only have one foot on it, at some point, your foot's not going to be on it. So just a simple thing like, you know, you really should put both feet on it. You know, just a, if you have something like where the guys are saying, you know, he really thought about this, you, you know, cool. it would get guys' attentions. But I think, you know, knowledge is really important. I mean, the paperwork, all of that, make sure you take care of in the office. 
lot of guys know what they're doing in fire, but you got to do both ends of the job, you know. And that would be my other point of advice. But, you know, and drill. You know, it might be uncomfortable, but, you know, you have, you studied, you you probably, particularly how young the job is, you can share something in, you know, and if you do it correctly, you're going to learn something every day. You know, every time, I mean, even when I was a battalion chief, I'd go to 26, I'd go somewhere, and I'd go, oh, I never thought of that, you know. you, And just be open-minded to learn every day, too. Because when you stop learning, they've said that from day one, when you think you got it, you're going to be humbled, you know. Sure. And as a fireman, if we get a covering guy, I want that guy to, to, to come and be involved because he's makes him feel better. If he feels more comfortable, he's going to be better. He also may have a story or a job or something that he went to that's a piece of information we should have. Right. Like no one knows everything about this job. No. And, and the more comfortable you make people feel, they're going to be at their best. Yes. And I think we, for the most part, I think in most places, but I found even bouncing, it was some, like, I mean, 147, I felt that that was a really comfortable place to work. You know, you hear, you hear rumors about all about Brooklyn. I personally think that there's not a big difference between Brooklyn as far as the, the guys are and how, how talented they are and everything else. And, uh, but, but, you know, it was, it was definitely like I was looking for something, you know, and every time you get promoted too or take on a new, whether you're doing the MPI, you know, you kind of get energized. You know, so any opportunity you get to learn something, I think guys should jump on it. You know, whether it's uh, somebody asks you to teach something at the Rock or, you know, even if you got to come offline. And, and I granted, I didn't come offline until I was a battalion chief. <laughs> but I did do a lot of stuff while I was online, you know. and I, But any time I got, got volunteered for something, I think I got more out of it than I was giving, you know. And I, and I really picked up a lot of information, you know. And I'll, when we talk about chief, I can talk about some of that stuff too. But I think first of all, like I said, is be confident and humble. You know, I think if you walk in and you're going to walk in like you're going to, you know, <laughs> it doesn't take long for you, you know, to, to, to screw up. But you have to be, hey, you know, you're, you're the boss. And I go and I know looking back, I think you, you got to look like the boss, too, you know, a little bit. You know, if you're walking around with a yellow shirt on all day, you know, uh, I'm not saying, you know, work out and fires, but you got to kind of look the part, you know, too. And I think that kind of helps and never, ever like. You know, tell the guys who you are, like showing your bars or anything yeah. like that. That would be a major violation. <laughs> you know. So you you spoke about a lot of one four seven Flatbush. You had another great company you land in. Yes. As a captain, you can talk a little about uh, first off the captain's role. How does the captain's role differ from a lieutenant's role? I, I definitely like by the time you become like I was a lieutenant in a great place, and I had a lot of like I said. Between all the people I worked with in 28, I kind of had an idea of the administrative part of it, you know. And I had example my two captains that I worked with, Patty Brown and Morris, you really couldn't, you know. But, I, I you know, I, I don't have a favorite rank maker because I love them all. But I like the captain because you're really just, it's your company. You know, there's 25 guys there, and you're responsible. And you I think you even see, like, if you have an impact, like whether it's drilling or whatever, you kind of see it more. Then you might, like as a battalion chief, you know, like you might make a difference, but you don't really, I don't think you see it as much as you would personally as, and f plus I was in an incredibly, I was in a great firehouse, yeah. you know, so yes. like some guys might not would agree with what I'm saying, but it was a spectacular place to be a captain. You know, I had, uh, there were tours there. Now I'm a captain with like 16 years on the fire department. I had Jerry O'Donnell was my 24 partner there. And then I had Mike Irwin, who was a Vietnam vet 30, over 30 years, and Dave Deering, 
Both guys had a 113 truck for firemen. So, you know, tremendous firemen. And they made my life so easy. And then in the, the engine, Hank Clifford had 40 years. You had Patty Ward had close to 40. The uh, George Murphy was the captain there. He had, a, had, I think, at least 30. And then Artie Darby was another guy who had around my time on a job. But it was a real senior house. Even the... the uh, the men, like on, uh, I'd say more often than not, I may have been the junior man working. <laughs> when I first got there, I had uh, Frank Witowski, Paco, and uh, Billy Johnson, my chauffeurs, two outstanding guys. Like I didn't really, I wasn't really familiar with, you know, Brooklyn at all. I knew my way around Queens from living in Queens, Manhattan, the Bronx, but Brooklyn was new to me, you know. And uh, they were just spectacular. They would, they would know, like, hey, we're gonna, we're gonna go to the back of the building. It's fronted on two sides. Just outstanding chauffeurs, you know. And then as I was there, they retired, and I got uh, John Hageman, who was like a, just a class act all the way. And and then I had uh, Bobby Fermaney, who was a uh, real senior man should be. I think he's retired, and he's still the senior man in 147. You know, he's just a, a great-hearted guy who'd do anything for anybody. So those with those guys, it was really a – it was just a – again, you're learning. You, like, look, the seniority, I picked up something every day. You know, Pete Brady. I mean, I could name, again, great people that I met there. Just a real cast of characters. All hardworking guys. Yeah, very lucky, weren't you? Yes, I was. I was uh, I was very fortunate in my career. Now, when, when you were in 147, is that, were you there when, when 9-11 hit? Yes. Now, as a captain, how do you, how do you handle the unimaginable? You know, I think that was a difficult time for everybody. The day of it, I was in. Uh, I was home, and I actually uh, was. I think I called John McLaughlin. He was the XO over something. You know, I forget what it was. And he said, "Did you see the TV?" And I turned the TV on, and I go, "Oh my God!" So my I was heading in because my sister actually worked in the for Morgan Stanley in the South Tower, and you had no. You know, it wasn't like everybody had cell phones. She did have one, but we couldn't talk to her. And then my brother called me shortly after that and said, wait for me, we're going together. He was a bouncing lieutenant at the time. So we drove into 147. We kind of, you know, eventually, like everybody else, we made our way down there. We were in City Hall Park when the uh, Building 7 came down, and we worked our way down to, uh, like, Church and Liberty. You couldn't, it was so quiet, you know. And, uh, you know, you just started, and the guys worked throughout the night. I remember Hank Clifford, they were doing the one rescue, and he was operating a hand line, like, you know, with the hand line. He wound up getting dehydrated and taken away, you know, taken to the hospital. Uh, Jerry O'Donnell was there, like, I mean, 40 years on the job still, and they were there, we were there all night long. Then you kind of go back to quarters, and you're trying to get things back to normal. And, you know, it was kind of a new normal for a couple of days because every night, I don't think I went home until after Father Judge's funeral, you know, and I, I forget how many days after it was. But uh, everyone was doing the right thing. And then when we had the, the details, originally I think it was for two weeks or three weeks, whatever it was, like I, you know, I was the captain, so I said I got to be one of the first ones to go. So I had me and a, about four or five of the young guys, and we wound up going down. You, and then you, you, at the beginning you had to go to Shea Stadium, take a bus down. But we wound up, I was fortunate I wound up with Bobby Morris, and he had a bunch of guys from 28. And he was always... Uh, to say the least, we were always testing tools. We were like, uh, and the tools, the Homatro tool and stuff like that was what the feds were bringing in there, so we knew how to use them. And we teamed up with them, and it was it, it was a tough two weeks because we really weren't finding anyone. You know, it was frustrating. 
And then we finally, uh, I think the last couple of days, we found a couple. And it, I know it sounds crazy, but you almost felt like, all right, at least we did something here for the, you know, for the three weeks we were here. But it was, it was definitely, uh, like I said, I think it was a tough time to be a captain. But because of all the, because of the tradition in that firehouse of doing the right thing, it all goes back to, like I said, doing the right thing. You know, I think we got through it. And I think one of the things, it was, uh, I think it was about either the 14th or the 15th, I was working a night tour, and we had a job on 18th Street. And uh, late at night, and we wound up pulling three children, I think all under two years old, out of the, out of the apartment. All three in cardiac arrest. Probably one, two in the morning, if I remember correctly. And uh, we get back to the firehouse, afterwards and Bobby Maines who was the I, I think he was the commander then by then but he was in the 4-1 battalion he calls up and says all three survived like one went to the hyperbaric chamber Jacoby but they all survived and it's funny I think the whole the whole firehouse kind of changed you know that's when when that happened like the kitchen was back to being the kitchen again like guys were laughing and it was just a, it was a great I know it sounds crazy but it was a great night like after guys were telling stories we were up till like, like the whole night, just kind of sure. laughing. So that I remember that breaking. That was probably one of the more memorable t- times, of, you know, things that I was involved in. And I remember that morning, we're listening to the radio in the kitchen, and I don't know, it was a guy from one of the companies that had lost somebody, and he, and he mentioned, like, you know, I just heard on the radio coming in that guys in Brooklyn rescued three kids, and he kind of said, like, even though through all of this, we're still getting the job done, you know? Yeah. And it was really... a. That kind of broke the ice, I found. I mean, I don't know. It's kind of hard to explain, but... A semblance of normality. Yes. And it, I think after that, everything kind of fell into place. And I wasn't there much longer. You know, normally, I probably would have been in another couple of years. But because of 9-11, I got promoted relatively. And I really would have liked to stay longer. But I remember talking to a couple of senior chiefs, and they're like, it's just not... The, right. it, it, it wouldn't be the right thing to do. Right. So but what you spoke about, you know... 147 in many respects preparing for this day in advance you know building that unit cohesion like lessons for the future yeah you know uh, what's crazy is that we're at a point now you know in the job now 90 percent of the firefighter rank is is post 9-11 who tells the stories like and what the lessons learned like the preparation on the front end can not only help you with execution but also resiliency I agree. I think like I think tradition has a lot to do with it. You know, I think every firehouse has a tradition. Some of them a little stronger than others. But I even like you know when you look, there were companies, you know, when I was a fireman, that didn't have the greatest traditions, and now they do. Now they're desirable companies. You know, senior men in offices can make a difference, can turn things around. You know, and if the work picks up in that, I mean, the work picks up in that area, it certainly helps. You know, and uh, the humor in the firehouse is helps us get through things. You know, you could say, listen, everybody has their immediate family, which is the most important thing to you. But, you know, the, the family, everybody working together for this common goal, I think that really comes through. And I think that's, it's amazing to me how quickly we, after what happened the 9-11, that we really, I think we actually got, we wound up stronger and better. You know, and I think the, those traditions in those firehouses, we, we talk about these young guys, I think they, they live on. I mean, it, things are different, but in a lot of ways, they're not that different, you know? Sure, sure. Just one point on, on that morning. You talk about character. Uh, Stevie Baselli from 26 pulled a person out of a burning apartment, 
And again, two hours later, it meant nothing. But Chief Galvin, six months later, came back and you know, and, and, and acknowledged what Stevie did. So you talk about a character. Like for six months, obviously, the focus is elsewhere. But the character of a man to come back and say, you know what, Stevie, you know, I didn't forget what you did uh, that morning. So. Uh, Right, that's it. I mean, Tom Galvin's another guy, like, you know, oh. in my career was just a, a real, you know, uh, a tremendous influence in a lot of guys' careers. Like, I remember when I first made Chief, he says to me, uh, you know, I want you to do this education day we're having for battalion chiefs. I'm like, I'm only a battalion chief for an hour and a half, you know. And he goes, no, really, we need a young guy. And I'm like, well, I don't know, you know. Next thing I know, I'm volunteering, you know. And it turned out to be one of the, you know, as a battalion chief, I was with Frank Donnelly and uh, Jerry Tracy and two extraordinary senior chiefs. Yeah. So every day I learned something else. I mean, and I knew Frank Donnelly, too, from the 16th Battalion. And he's just a, he's a brilliant guy with a great sense of humor and low key. You know, when you talk about confident and humble, he's the epitome, yeah. you know, of that. And every day, you know, we would talk about like I, I, I like to think that, you know, he. Him and Jerry brought up at the time, we had a Mayday checklist. Like we talked about how to handle Mayday's roll calls. We didn't have all the answers. You know, uh, wind-driven fires they talked about. And, and uh, they put a book together. Like uh, Frank Donnelly and Jerry, uh, Jerry talked about leadership. You know, and at the time, it wasn't like the, you, you know, it wasn't, there wasn't a lot of open minds about it. But, you know, and even when we were doing the class, it wasn't our primary thing to talk about. But, you know, Jerry got into it. And like I said, Every time I went to it, when we, after we did the whole class, set it up, and I was, you know, we'd have two of us teaching each day, again, not offline, we would figure it out to work, and, you know, between the 10 chiefs that would sit there, it was a tremendous learning experience. You know, when we do scenarios at the end, like, you know, not, not crazy, just to throw out a, you know, this is what happened, you know, and we would say to them, uh, you know, we'd have groups in the class and say, all right, give them another input, and they would write down like and now you go well I would have done this I would have done that and you just you learn so that was one of the real when when Tom Galvin got me involved in that it was one of the probably as make as a chief really helped me out because I went from I had great guys in the 12th battalion but you know they weren't there very long when I got there you know the Kevin O'Keefe got me up there it was a short-term UFO spot that I stayed for 15 years <laughs> and uh you know I couldn't thank him enough and then he wound up getting hurt and, had, and retired, and then shortly after that, Gary Connolly was the commander, another unbelievable guy to work for. I mean, uh, a great person, and uh, he wound up getting injured. And 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 Ferran, Mark Ferran, who's uh, been the the commander of the 14th Division forever, yeah. was uh, was the other chief with me when I was. You know, they were all assigned. I wound up getting Mark's spot, and shortly thereafter, I was the, you know, you know, I got an hour and a half as a chief, and I'm the commander. You know. <laughs> And Frank Donnelly and Jerry were just great guys to sounding boards. And Kevin, too, and Gary, I'd call them up on occasion. And Frank's thing was always just take a breath and think about it. You know, like if you were getting annoyed about something, like, all right. Particularly administrative stuff, like, all right, you know what? If he wants to do it that way, as long as it's getting done right, I don't care. You know, and people knew what he expected, but he, he got it done. But he was not, that was just a... Another thing that Tom Galvin got me involved with, which was a home run. Sure. As a young chief, what was it like uh, stepping into a battalion where uh, 
two of those battalion chiefs, Freddie and, and, and Joe, were, were killed. Well, you know what? I think by the time I got there, we were probably September. We were probably six months, six, seven months into it. And I have to say, Kevin O'Keefe, Gary, and Mark Ferran, and all the guys in the 12th Battalion, because you had Nagel and your firehouse really had stepped up and were doing the right thing. And, you know, when you think, I know it sounds, but they were dealing, we were dealing in the 12th with three people where when you went into the third division, there was companies with 14, you know, 12, you know, crazy numbers. And uh, it was, you you know, like in a way, well, I knew Freddie Shuffle because he was the commander when I was bouncing as a lieutenant. And Joe Marchbanks, I knew very well because he's not really like I don't know. Somehow we're related, you know. He's he's my my aunt's niece's husband, you know. And he was a, in a small world, but he also when he got on a job, he somehow wound up in forty two truck, you know. And uh, with my father and uh, Joe was just a wonderful, wonderful guy, you know. And I, the guys really were. They took extraordinary. I think they really. I think it's appreciated, and they took extraordinary care of those families. To this day, they have a uh, on nine eleven. They have a, and the turnout is. They go to uh, Joe Marchbank's grave, which is just a headstone, and uh, Steve D'Amato, who was a, a Catholic deacon, respect another ace, you know, and uh, he prepares like a sermon there, and every year it, it gets better. And and Teresa Marchbanks, my aunts, every you know, and and I I can't every year there's more guys coming that didn't even know them, but it's become quite the tradition. And then you go from there. We drive down to Freddie Sheffield has a monument in uh, Piemont, a spectacular monument. They the town, you know, it's it's great. And and Joan Sheffield's there, and it's funny when we first started doing it. I don't know if he had any grandkids. Now there's like eight or nine, however it is. And last year, they actually, a pack of them spoke after Steve D'Amato does another little sermon, a couple of prayers. And then after that, we go to a, the sidewalk cafe for lunch. It's just a, it's a great tradition that they, and you know, the 10 year anniversary, they had a mass. They, and they constantly check in and make sure they don't need anything. And I think that's every, you know, we take care of our own. It's, uh, it's really what the, and I think that was helpful for guys too, you know. Like I always say, and I even with the fire transport, I, get, I know I'm jumping around. I hope it's not. <laughs> it's okay. But I think guys like, you know, volunteering, helping somebody, it's as good for the guy who's doing the volunteering as it is for the person who's receiving. I think it's easier. Nobody wants anybody to help them, you know. But the person helping gets more out of it, I think, than the person they're actually helping, you know. Sure. And as a battalion chief. What was it like dealing with a never-ending stream of, of young guys and gals? Well, the, the, the JMA, we called them, the Junior Man Alliance, <laughs> you know. But, uh, you know, one of the things I miss now that I'm out is I loved having the young guys. You know, it kind of motivated me to stay fit. Even though we were a chief, we used to joke around, we were the fittest battalion, the 12th battalion. <laughs> and, uh, but I, you know... I think, you know, some guys, oh, these guys that today with, it does bother like a little bit. I'd like to see them a little off the cell phones more and stuff like that. And, you know, I mean, the guys would be rolling over in their graves if they knew guys were paying on Venmo for the meal. You know, <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, in, in the meals even, like when I was a, a, a fireman at 43, if you had the second detail, you brought the meal in from home because there really wasn't much around the firehouse to go shopping. 
I mean, I used to use coupons because if you, if it was over $4, man, and I wasn't a gourmet chef. Thank God for Matty Murtaugh and a lot of other guys who were real good cooks who would bail me out all the time, you know. Uh, you know, another guy, great person. Uh, but I think the young guys today, like I think what, what guys say about them, they probably were saying about me when I first came. You know, there weren't a lot of college guys coming on. I could wash windows. I wasn't the handiest guy around. You know, I could go up in the ladder, I, you know. But, uh, you know, the, today, I think the guys, I think they're great. They're educated. They're, they're smart. They're caring. I particularly like the idea of, I think the guys coming from EMS are outstanding. I think it's a great, you know, they learn the fire department. And I think it's a great way, you know, guys from the military are excellent that come on. But I really do think, in the beginning, everyone was, oh, these guys, they turned out, I think, great. Not only are they really good when it comes to CFRD, which is a lot of our runs now, but they really have an appreciation for how great a job this is, you know? And, uh, and I, it, it bothers me to this day, although they did just get uh, bumped up a little with pay, but they're not even, like, their time doesn't count. For the, they're part of the same department, and their time doesn't count on the fire department. It, to me, it's crazy. Well, there, there is a bill that's pending, and, and uh, there is a possibility that they, that, that can be re remedied. I hope so. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, it's crazy that guys come over from other agencies, you know, and not that they shouldn't have it either, but the one that's in part of our department, it doesn't count, you know, and, they, and they're hardworking. I mean, I just think it's a, it's a, I think for the fire department, both ends, I think the EMS side gets really motivated people to come on. And I think we're lucky that we get them afterwards. I really think they're getting high-quality people. But first of all, you know, it's not easy becoming an EMT. I mean, I struggled through CFRD, you know. <laughs> but like, so they're, they're ready when they come on here for the most part. I'm not saying, like, you know, it's 100% for anything, but I, I found that they were really – I think they added to the job. And having those skills is also critical when one of us goes down. Right. Um, I think, you know, when, we, when I came on, like, we, you know, we learned CPR in probie school. That was it. You know, we had a resuscitator. We, like, if you didn't use it properly, when you think about, you know, the ba the bagging somebody now, we didn't have bags. Like, you know, we, I was fortunate we worked with a couple of guys who were nurses. Like, when we had pulled people out, they were able, they knew what they were doing. You know, we did our best, you know. And, uh, and again, like, we didn't have to know, we didn't have to almost become EMTs. Like, that. again, you had to know more and be more fit now. Than, uh, than we did when we had to come on. And uh, now I think the guys, the guys today are, are unbelievable. You know, if they get, they work their way into with the special units or whatever they are, like, I mean, I haven't seen any, like I worked in when I was, you know, I'm in, I was in rescue operations. I mean, these guys are talented. There's a lot of talent in this job. I don't think maybe not quite as much, but I think if you had, there's probably pilots, helicopter pilots. I know there are because when he started the drone thing, all of a sudden these guys were, <laughs> I go, he's a pilot. You know, I mean, it's just that they, they can do anything for yes. him. And the academic talent is extraordinary. Right. I mean, the number of Ivy Leaguers on this job is, is obscene. Right. And I think we've gotten, and I, the other thing we've had, we've got a lot guy, more guys now that with military. Yes. And they, you know, and they understand discipline. And, you know, it's, it is paramilitary. It's not as strict. But for the most part, you have to listen. You know, you can disagree afterwards, you know. And, and they're ready to perform. Right. No I mean, question. One of my guys, uh, Ryan Mosher, he's slapping a, a tourniquet on a guy who's cut in half underneath a, a subway car. I mean, you talk about skills. I mean, he's a highly decorated Navy corpsman. I mean, and, and bringing combat medicine to 
to the urban battlefield, if you will. Right. Well, I mean, you think about just that. No, everybody, you know, all units now carry tourniquets. How things have changed. You know, we were using a pencil and using your belt and don't and don't do it. Right. Because the guy was going to lose a limb. That's right. Like just how, you know, I think we've become more open minded too. Learn from other departments, and I think even like uh, getting into the IMT. Like I remember after nine eleven, we had uh, you know the guys from the Forest Service kind of showed up and guys are like, what the, f you know, we're we going to be planting trees down here, you know, and, but they, they knew how to organize an event that went on for miles and months, you know, some of these wildfires and they were really, they helped us organize things. If you remember, like one of the uh, recommendations, I think from the McKenzie report to have our own IMT and just to see where it came from, like I was one of the initial guys who got trained and it was a, you know, it was an all-star team of guys in that too. But eventually, Katrina was another highlight of, uh, you know, we went down to Katrina, and I think we all were looking for, like, the payback to the rest of the country, what they did for us by coming up here and going to funerals and everything else. I mean, the, the whole the fire service nationwide was really incredible when, we, uh, when you think about 9-11. And going down there really felt like we were giving back. And, again, we went down there, I think there was – kind of like a, a vetting process for who's going. And we did get an all-star team down there. And the work the guys did, because the first couple of weeks, there was a lot of fires. There was, you know, just organizing. I mean, you weren't going out at night. As soon as the sun came up, guys would go start going to fires. And, you know, and what they accomplished down there with the help of the New Orleans. And the New Orleans guys who stayed around right after the hurricane, it was their A-team too. The guys who went the first two weeks, we were, you know, although... In the beginning, like, we, you know, we didn't know. We, we, this is our first deployment. And when I look at where we came from as a, an IMT, like, you know, f from where we were then to what the IMT is today, it's, it's unbelievable. Right. You know, now you, there's task books and stuff, but we needed to make guys operation section chiefs. I tell guys, I go, I don't think I would have, I don't think I would have been able to get through all of this, you know. And, uh, but... I, I, you know, I just, I ran into a couple of guys the other day and they're just pretty much they're the New York City IMT now. They're probably the, the if you're looking at an all-hazard IMT, this FDNY's IMT is it. I mean, they're really, it's spectacular how they've blossomed and grown. And it is big events. I mean, we're organized now. Like, where, you know, if you're going to have something going on for a couple of days, they were really... Just extraordinary people who started that, and it was like Bob Maines, uh, Manahan, you know, really ran with this when it's when it started. Uh, Jimmy Kane, I mean, you, I could go on and on and name guys in that too. Paulie Talbot was in logistics, you know. Uh, myself, Mike McPartland in operations, and it was just, it was, oh, it was great, you know. And even some of the opportunities it gave me, like who I remember, I'm out in uh, Montana shadowing one of the IMT teams when it first started. And I was out there with uh, uh, Bill Seelig, Eddie Kilduff, Pat McNally. I was an all-star team at the time. Uh, it was like a real, like we, you learned a lot, you know, and it was extraordinary. I remember talking to my father from out there. He goes, you're in our, what are you, where are you? Uh, the fire department sending you out there? You know, like who would have thought? But I think, you know, I think we became a little like, you know, I think we were all kind of in our own little world saying, oh, you know, we're the New York City Fire Department. I think after 9-11, we kind of expanded a little and we were able to, you know, pick up things from other places and learn more. And the IIT, I think, is a good example. Sure. I think one of the best trainings that you were involved in um, was that you took deputy chiefs, newly promoted ones at The Rock, 
you brought in the actual uh, utility guys, transit guys. Yes. And you had like 15 of us as firemen in the other room doing the transmissions. And I, I really remember how much, because Mike McPartland did it twice. And on that day in, in, in uh, the explosion, the gas explosion and, and the multiple collapses, he had that uh, incident. Mm-hmm. And I remember we were parked on 3rd Avenue, 112. We we're going to the hardware store. And I'm listening to this. And I'm like, Mike's already done this. I mean, he's great to begin with. But the training, and that, that's like before MPI. Right. Like it was building like slide decks and these deputies. And, and it gave them an opportunity also to make mistakes in training that they wouldn't do in, in, in real life. I thought that was one of the best things that, that, uh, that you were ever involved in. Well, I, was, I mean, I, I'm, I can't take credit for that. That was Jerry Koziak really ran with that. He was the chief of tactical training uh, prior to me going there for a little while. and uh, The guy from the Bronx. Um, Brendan Gillen had a lot to do with that. Uh, the guy in the 3rd Battalion who, um, Kinley. Yes. Really smart guy. Yes, he was very, I mean, but they put that, you know, I'd have to say that Brendan and and, uh, and Jerry really put that together. And we brought guys from Con Ed. And it go, went back to like even before MPI. It's like, you know, people are going to learn. They have to be uncomfortable. And guys, it was funny. Like I had to talk guys like off the, like afterwards sometimes. Like, hey, it's only a drill, you know. And I think that's one of the things when you're doing training is I, and I don't have all the answers, but if you can be less defensive, like the person, like, hey, it's training. I'm supposed, this is where I want to make a mistake. You know, not, I don't want to make a mistake when I'm, when, you know, when real people are involved. But that was a, it was a really, I love that drill. They, you know, kind of even with the, uh, they started the engine chauffeur drills. When they brought it, we had these spare apparatus coming around. And you really, and I think that was prior to MPI also. And it was just kind of getting guys really uncomfortable. And you'd see guys, you know, we'd, we'd make, we, we could do things by making it look like the, the you know, they lost water, kink lead, burst length. And you could, I mean, I'd love to see what their heart rates were at the time, you know. And guys sometimes would get angry and you say, listen, man, this is where you, you know, if you have this now, you got it, you know. Right. And we'd go back and do it. If the guy, let's do it again. And also as a battalion chief, you were involved early on in the development, rollout, and execution of the uh, mental performance initiative. Uh, can you talk to us briefly about your role back then and, and, and what it undertook? Well, I remember, uh, I, I know they had a meeting prior to coming out to the Rockwood that they had gone downtown and talked to the, the higher-ups. And they were saying, like, and, you know, Jason Bezler, I think uh, Tommy Richardson, they were all in a meeting. And then now they were doing a presentation at the Rock. And and Jason, they, they, and he was, he, I, I was sitting in on a meeting because at the time I had a, uh, I had got whacked in the eye and I had a detached retina, so I was out in tactical training. And uh, I was offline for that one. <laughs> and uh, and I was in this meeting, and they had they were t- and he was talking. I had a white paper. I don't know what a white paper was. You know, I'm not I'm not a brainiac. And he's they're brilliant guys, and they they talk about it. And you know, you could see there's some eye rolling. You know, it's completely new. And we're at the table, and they said, you know, we want we need somebody to kind of run with this. You know, and a thing. I'm like, I. So I just kind of said, yeah, it sounds interesting. I'll do it, you know, maybe. And I'm always looking to do something maybe, hey, maybe just make me better. Who knows, you know? And, you know, then I, you know, we started talking and we had a lot of smart people in these rooms. Sometimes I've, like, I think I used to say, like, you know, you got to kind of bring it down to, you know, high school level here, you know, it, you, know they, you know, between Jason, Mike McLaughlin at the time was there, uh, Joe Brosey, 
You know, it was in a lot of opinions, you know. And I remember Eddie Dowling, a guy from 14 Truck who at a, a older in life became a Green Beret. So he was a perfect example of MPI. He was sitting there and he's on like a little computer. Next thing I know, he kind of put a PowerPoint together and <laughs> we started doing that awareness uh, drill. And one of the things we taught, I remember talking about was you know, we like we have to sell this to the troops. How are we going to do that? And I think we came up with, first of all, I thought the buy-in was a lot better than we expected. But I think the fact that we said the guys before us did all of this, you know, to get, like, and first of all, I always said, if you, like, I and I, I think he had mentioned, like, if you look at anybody, if you ask a guy in 26 truck, what do you admire about a senior man or officer? I would say 99 of 100 guys are going to, he's calm. He doesn't get, he doesn't seem to get rattled. In the meantime, you know, people might say that about you. In the meantime, I, I might give the impression that I am, but I know I was always a little scared, you know. <laughs> but he, uh, when, when, you, when you went there, you said, these guys were doing all that we're talking about, but now we could see the science behind it. And maybe guys who weren't doing it say, hey, you know what? If I do this, maybe I can be better, you know. And, you know, having the sports and the military as examples, I think we really did do that – Initial PowerPoint, there was so many guys worked on it, was really, I thought it was a good starting point to the, to the MPI thing. And I think as the, the chief running it at the time, like I think if like most of the other things, like I was saying, like I kind of let the guys run with it, you know, like I trusted that they were going to do a good job and, and they did. I, you know, there was certain things I might have a little input, but for the most part, like, you know, I don't, I think the best thing we did was let a firefighter at the time, now a Lieutenant Jason Bezler, Kind, and I think we got the right guys involved, including you, you know, from the from my battalion. I mean, we got a lot of guys. And even after I left, you look at the list of guys even with leadership on the fire. They're, they're guys that are into this stuff, and they've done it in real life, you know. And I think down the road, I think it's going to, like, you know, when you talk about the human factor and how it affects things, I think down the road it's going to save people's lives. I really do. I think that just – Guys, like you know, having the ability to think a little more clearly on the fire ground, and I know I can remember doing it myself. Like, you know, taking a like saying, "Wait a second, where am I here?" You know, and doing a search, taking a breath, and saying, "You know what? Let me go back to the door and start this over." You know, just talking to like I thought self-talk. It's something I think I never, I always did. You know, like in the back of my head, my in my mind, I was, I, I, I got this. You know, I've been here before. You know. In the meantime, as you're going closer and closer, you go, well, you know, my, my head's starting to melt, but I think I'll be all right. You know, for younger guys, I think now it's in probie school. Yeah. I, I think it's in every promotional class. It's, uh, you know, when I look back at my career, I'm, I'm glad I was a small part of it, but it really did make a difference. I mean, I think guys, I think the drills became better because guys became less, less defensive, you, you, you know, like even i remember when the when the mobile training vehicle the rat cage everybody calls used to come around uh you know guys would be like and you know after that i think it like just go do it you know when the guy's in there it is like a little stressful you know you you know just take your breath calm down i think like it's so simple the techniques you can use to keep your heart rate down and i think that another thing guys don't realize how helpful it is in your private life. You know, everybody gets frustrated with their kids sometimes at home. I remember, I don't know who was the, uh, the instructor. It might have been Fader, I forget. But I remember them saying that, you know, when you, you, you have your, a young kid and they're, they're crying and they can't, they're inconsolable, right? 
And, you know, the, our normal reaction is to say, you know, you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. Well, you know, he's a, they're three years old. They don't know that. But if you put your hand on their shoulder and say, I'm here now, it triggers something in their mind. And I like, it's funny. I tried it with one of my nephew's kids one time. And I was like, wow, man. <laughs> I mean, maybe my kids would like me better if I was more like this with them, you know. But, I mean, just little things. And I think even just judging people in real life, you know. I just, I think in a firehouse, too, there's usually... There's a guy in a firehouse who's always like an easy target, you know? And, but there's usually a guy that's going to say, all right, that's enough, you know? And he becomes your guy. Like, you know, he might be a lovable guy, might not be perfect, but you know what? He's our guy. Yeah. He's our Joe Smith. You know, he's whatever, whoever it might be. And I think most places, you know, that's how they are. They go like, I, you know, don't pick on him. You know, you, you're at a racket, somebody starts picking on him, all of a sudden... You know, they can't believe that 20 guys want to fight him, you know. But that's what I know I'm going all over the place. That's quite all right. But with respect to the MPI program, I'm going to take a moment here on behalf of Jason, myself, and the team to thank you for all of the work that you did that allowed us to get to the point where we are now. I mean, you did all the legwork and the things behind the scene that nobody saw. I mean, we do things that are out in the open, but we would not be in this place now and not in this position were it not for the extraordinary efforts that you undertook. And we are forever grateful for what you did to get this thing moving, um, to support and help us and get to this point. And the amazing thing is that doing the work that you did will improve the capability sets of firefighters, which will enhance their ability to save lives. It's very rare when you can do something that will impact on life and death which is normally the exclusive and divine providence of God himself. <laughs> but from we thank you. We cannot thank you enough for what you did and to get this thing rolling. And now there are f departments all over the country that are trying to get their own up and running. And uh, well, we, th we thank you, Chief. Well, I thank you. I mean, again, it was one of those things where you pick the right people, they make you look good, <laughs> you know. And, uh, and I certainly did when it came to the MPI. Or... You know, like I said, Jason really started the whole thing. And uh, he, in between all of us, you know, I think we did get a lot of good people involved, you know. So as we start to wrap up, so you get promoted again to Deputy Chief, Deputy Chief of Rescue Operations and the Special Operations Command of the FDNY. Right. That's a great way to cap off your career. Could you talk a little bit about that experience? You know, I was only promoted for a short time, you know, and... Uh, <laughs> Yet again. You know, and uh, you know, I was asked if I'd be interested in, in going into, uh, you know, re rescue operations. And I was, you know, I was flattered by the thought, and I knew it was going to be a challenging position, you know, because, I mean, I did cover in the rescue battalion, like as a, a battalion chief, like when there was openings there. So I was familiar. I knew a lot of guys in the rescue companies from training and doing all of that stuff. And the timing for me was perfect, too, for going there. Like, my two daughters, you know, were out of the house. they both nurses in here, like I said before. My wife was still working, you know, so it wasn't, you know, like at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, I got a call, there's a third alarm. I'm like, ah, you know what, maybe I'll take this in, you know. <laughs> and uh, I was, you know, I was probably always a little bit of a buff. I became a little more of a buff when I got to rescue operations because I had every radio known to mankind, you know. I had, uh, you know, I had a call because I was responding from home. Uh, and it was administratively, it was a lot different than anything I ha ever had to do before. Like when I was in the battalion, pretty much when I went home, I had, if I caught a job at the change of tours, I would get the report done before I went home. 
you know, I kind of had everything, and I was working, which I kind of skipped, we skipped over the, the, the kind of the 12th Battalion, the guys I worked with there were extraordinary. I mean, we talked about like Ferran and O'Keefe and Connolly, but myself, John Hilly, Pete Mulhall, and Steve DeLocri, in that order, we, you know, John came right after me when I got there, and probably the best selection that I ever made in history because he was like, he was a real like administrative guy that we needed at the time. He took care of everything in the office, and he was great at far. I think all of the chiefs, you know, you had Steve DeLocri, who we all know went to Bronx High School of Science, <laughs> you know. and but he was a young guy that we brought in that was just a perfect fit, in my opinion. I really couldn't have worked. The whole, I mean, almost the entire time I was there, I worked with those those three guys, and that's rare too that a battalion would stay together for that long, you know. Yes. And then I got promoted, and shortly thereafter, the fittest battalion started falling apart, you know. <laughs> but uh, it really was. I can't tell you. There never when I came to like, there was never anything on the desk. Everybody took care of what they were supposed to care of. We had a good system of who was in charge of what, and you know, and we all got along great. You know, like we would come in, we all rode to the hour. Because, you know, we going back to my fireman days, there's John Calamari, there's more fires between five and six <laughs> than nine and five. And uh, when we came in, so everybody still came in, quarter to five, five. So you always were in the office, and guys didn't leave until, like, I used to work out, you know, leaving there until 7.30 at night, you know. And the we, the aides we had there were extraordinary, you know. I mean, like, after 9-11, we had none, really. We were just detailing guys. But they all, I think they all wanted to be in the Battalion 12 Hall of, Battalion 8 Hall of Fame. So they really, you know, we started that, you know, and, they, you know, and then when they were leaving, nah, nah, you're an honorable mention. You know, you didn't get all the votes. And, what do you mean I'm an honorable mention? You know, to this day, there's guys that want to be in the Hall of Fame. Well, we'll see. But uh, I was so fortunate when I look back at the people I worked with. You know, I looked back on, you know, there's not, there's not very, there's very few people I can't really think of any of offhand that I, di I didn't like on the fire department, you know? And uh, it's hard. It's hard not to be liked. <laughs> yeah. You know, you almost have to try, <laughs> you know? But uh, no, it's just a, it's a, it was a wonderful place to work. Indeed. It's a very special place. While we still have a few moments, I know the fire family transport is, is very close to your heart. Could you just explain, particularly to our listeners who are outside of New York, what it is and what its primary function is? Well, it was started back in 1992 or three, I think it's 92, by Pat Cannon, who was a former member of 59, but he was a lieutenant in 111 truck at the time, and Joe Valenti. Uh, there was some kind of a fire there, and they were going to, like in families, trying to get him into the burn center. And at the time, it was still, most of the guys, it was burn injuries at the time, because we didn't have bunker gear. And uh, so his goal, when Patty and Joe Valenti started this, was to have a car in every borough, and they were selling koozies, T-shirts, you know, whatever it was. They got a couple of big donations, but eventually there was, like I said, the goal was five. I don't know how many we had, but then 9-11 hit. And after 9-11, we got a lot of donations, and the need, obviously, was greater. And around, I guess, after, just before, we, like when, because it was when the Family Assistance Unit got up and running, we had, so, we had like 25 or 30 vehicles what we did is we had, they were donated to the city and the family assistance unit dispatched them. So the, because like, I mean, the uh, livery cab company doesn't have that many cars. It was really, so usually they have light duty guys and family assistants do an extraordinary job. And those cars are for 
active members and members suffering from 9-11 illness now, for the most part. And then the foundation owns, owned, the foundation itself owns 10 vehicles. And uh, those are for retired members. And we have them in different locations throughout the city and the, and the uh, five counties. So we have one in Rockland. We have ride coordinators up there, Michael Porter and Steve Lonigan. John Cisack is up in Orange County. We've got three, two on Long Island with uh, Eddie Fofer. We've got three with Steve Bayer in Staten Island because there's quite a few firemen in Staten Island. And we've got a, uh, with Danny Prince, Bobby Fermani, we've got a bunch in uh, two or three, I think, in Brooklyn and Queens. So, you know, we try to cover all the areas. And, you know, there's a, for the most part, what we do is when you have now, it seems like we're, we're transporting a lot of guys with uh, cancer, getting cancer treatments, sad to say. And, uh, you know, just recently we had uh, another great guy, uh, EJ Tanny, just passed away. He had the car. You know, he used to call it the Uber. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he had two great guys, Jimmy uh, McCluskey and John Hassett. It drove him. Like some guys say to me, like, you know, like when you're talking about volunteers and getting as much out of it as the families. But I think sometimes, usually, you know, we do have volunteers. So you might have a guy, 80, 85, 80, he needs a ride to the doctor out on Long Island or Staten Island. And then we'll go to our volunteer list. But for a lot of occasions, if a guy is going for long-term treatments, it's usually guys in his own firehouse will have the car. But, you know, what's the great thing about the car is I know for guys outside New York, you might like getting into Manhattan, parking in Manhattan, you know, you, it's tolls, parking, like the foundation for those 10 cars we own, we pick up all of that. We pay the insurance on the cars. We pay for fuel. Uh, we pay for now red light and speed camera tickets. <laughs> Not too much, but we quite a bit, you know. We pay, uh, you know, and just having like this taking that – off of the family saying somebody's picking them up, driving them down, you know, particularly if they're in the hospital for something, you know, and having someone they know, you know, makes it even better. But even like, you know, sometimes guys will tell me like they pick up an old timer, take them to, and the guy's crying. Can't believe like 30 years after he retired, the guys are still helping him out. So it's really a, an incredible organization, but it's also, it costs a lot of money. You know, the, the cause that the city runs out of family assistance, obviously the city, they get donated through our foundation, and people are so generous. A lot of widows, organizations, you know, fire chiefs, El Sasa. I mean, I can go on and on. We have a waiting list for cars. But on the other end, our operational expenses are, are probably approximately 250 grand a year. Our insurance alone, because they're livery cabs, basically, with different people driving them, is 100000 So you're not selling koozies and, you know, and T-shirts to come up with that money, but... You know, we have been fortunate with some nice donations. We run a, we just ran a big event yep. that was very successful. And, uh, you know, and the guys, the guys are very grateful after they use it. And they, a lot of guys have been very, very uh, grateful and given us a lot, large donations. But we're, you know, like I said, if anyone's interested, you can go on the website, FDMY Fire Family Transport. You'll see it up there. And it'll say, if you want to donate, you know, we're, we're more than accepting. Terrific. Terrific. Upon retirement, what reflections and memories do you hold most dear? Well, I, I mean, I'm enjoying my retirement right now, but I actually, if you asked me, I'd go back tomorrow. I mean, uh, <laughs> the thing I talked about at 9-11 and 147 is something I really, you know, yeah. recall. Uh, the way, uh, you know, it was a guy when I was a fireman in, in 43 and 59 whose wife had... Uh, 
wound up who was like kind of the main breadwinner, a family of four kids, and uh, just a, a real nice guy. I'm not going to, I don't want to mention his name, but uh, I don't know for how long, but six months to a year, you know, while she was going through the cancer treatments at the time, the guys picked up all his tours. Like, you know, he never had to come to work. And I don't, you know, I mean, I know we have a counseling unit now. We didn't have it back then. But, you know, I don't think you find another profession where guys look out for each other. I think one of the things I miss the most, I mean, uh, you know, what other job do you come into work every day? You, you laugh. Like I said, you make a friend. You're helping people. I mean, every day you're making somebody's life, whether it's a war, like even though you don't think about it, turning off the water for an old lady. And you just the little things like that, you know, people are really grateful. Like, you know, and then I think the, one of the things I miss is helping just the men. You know, you hear a guy's in trouble, you know, and that's everywhere. You know, every firehouse yeah. does the same thing. But, uh, you know, getting promoted, I think sometimes, you know, you know, just the day of the promotion between my father, my wife and kids, you know, those are just wonderful days. They're proud moments for everybody. You know, uh, I was fortunate one time, the same thing, you're like the mayor when you're on medal day, you know, uh, it's, you know, your kids are like, you know, wow, can't believe this, you know, <laughs> you know, like I, I always say, even the way we do with the ceremony unit now, the way we do funerals, it's sad, but they, they get some send off and they're, you know, between Joel LaPointe and the people and family assistants, they're wonderful. Yeah, you know, no, for the families. Nobody sends people out the way we do. No. Nobody. No. It's extraordinary, you know. But I've had so many moments I could think of and so many, you know, things off and on the job with all the people I've met through this, and I wouldn't change a thing, you know. Just, met- just great people, man. I mean, uh, you know, between the, the camaraderie and and going to fires. I mean, I you know, you, I'm not saying I don't miss the excitement, but – you know, you really, I don't think you can find a profession where you get more job satisfaction. Yeah, absolutely. That's why guys miss it so much. Yeah, yeah. So now with just a couple of speed questions and then we'll wrap it up for today. What was your best rank? You know, I, I, people have asked me that uh, on a couple. Of, I liked them all. We talked, I was in 43 and 59 at the time. We were one of the busier companies in the city. Going to a lot of fires with unbelievable fireman with a great tradition, high expectations. And I think it really prepared me well with the officers and senior guys there for everything else in my career. Then I go to 28 truck and I got Patty Barron and Bobby <laughs> Morris and John Farrakko and Carberry. I mean, and, you know, and I didn't want to leave there. And then you had Kennedy, Cassidy, Griffin, you know, McKnight in the, in the battalion. And I wound up studying and I wind up, you know, by, by kind of a fluke, I'm in 147. I was doing a vacation, I think, in one of the other companies in the 4-1, and we did a drill, you know, and I was doing the drill, and and one of the chiefs there said, hey, you know, we might have an opening here, you know, and I wasn't bouncing again that long, and I wound up UFO there, and, uh, you know, again, you know, the junior man working probably 90% of the time as the captain, <laughs> and they, they treated me, ah, oh, just a spectacular place, and then going to the 12th Battalion, just the men, they always took care of me. You know, from coming up in the battalion, you showed up, they were always respectful and and fun. You know, I mean, I, I don't think I ever went to a, stopped in at a firehouse at, at some point. You know, maybe they might have been annoyed when at first, by the time we left, we had a couple <laughs> of laughs. You know, I mean, it was really a, uh, you know, the company offices, they were spectacular and they were around for a long time. Yeah. Just uh, wonderful people, you know. Excellent. 
What's the best book you've read? I really liked the Unbroken. You know, it was one of the real good books I read. I think I like books about re- people who are really resilient. And I love the whole Stoic philosophy. Yep. I think it's just, it lends, it's, it just amazes me that whatever, thousands of years later, that a lot of the stuff with these people are talking about in, when, you, when, when you put it into today's terms still makes a lot of sense, you know? And that kind, of, I remember taking a course like in college and I kind of like to think, you know, I thought about like the Stoic stuff, but I really started thinking about it when it came up in some of our conversations and stuff like that. So I like that. And uh, for the MPI stuff, I think at least initially, I think a great book to read, and you don't have to read the whole thing, is Grossman's uh, On Combat. I think just the, you know, they're talking about the curve and the different colors and I think it, it simplifies it to, you know, when you're not getting too deep into it, but you're saying, you know what, I under, you know, I can understand this now, the backside of the curve and all the terminology and where your heart rate is. And I think when you see that, you can feel it in yourself saying, hey, you know, I know even sometimes when, it, when you had the, your mask on, you're like, oh, whoa. you can feel it. You kind of hear yourself, you know, calm down, you know, kind of talking yourself down and doing that. Now you're seeing from all what he's, you know, about controlling your heart rate and doing that. You're going to be able to think more clearly. And actually, you know, since I retired, like, I've been reading a little more. Like, you know, when you're working, you're really reading more stuff geared towards the fire department, sure. you know. And now, like, and with the MPI, I started reading, like, <laughs> different books. Not like you. I mean, I do still watch TV. But uh, it's definitely, uh, you know, been enlightening in a lot of ways. That's great. Okay, and we'll wrap up with, who's your favorite presenter at the MPI conferences? And this is a hard one. Yeah. Uh, man, there's a, there were very few that I didn't think I picked up my nugget in a day or whatever it might be. I have to say my personal favorite was uh, Fader. Yeah. You know, Fader was like, I actually consider him a friend, you know, from, the, from doing all this stuff. Uh, he's just a, a unique individual. And I think the fact that, you know, he was the, uh, the mental skills coach for the Mets and the Giants. You know, that all, and it's all, like, and when you look at his background, you know, the fact, I mean, he's so well-rounded. He's fluent in Spanish, you know. I mean, there's so many things, but just talking to him, he's a wonderful guy. I actually went uh, to one of his, he had like a two-day seminar, and it was, you know, I was sitting in there like I'm, you know, I'm a fire chief, and there's, you know, guys who were reformed alcoholics, and it was just a, 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 so different. And he said, like, are you comfortable? You know, and I wasn't really uncomfortable. I mean, I'm, I'm not really, a, I know it's hard to believe, but I'm not really a big talker, you know, but uh, <laughs> after this, but, uh, you know, just sitting through that and just the way people, how you can kind of walk people through improving themselves was really, and this, giving me the opportunity to go to that, sure. like I would never been able, like it was another thing, like, you're going, where are you going to, you know? <laughs> Motivational interviewing, I think, yes, or something like yes. that. It was cool. But uh, I just enjoyed, you know, I just think, and every time was a little different. And then he also brought the other guys like Ben and Hannah, Hannah and all them in. It was really, uh, you know, and, and they were younger, so it hit a different demographic for us. So it was, and I think we got younger. I mean, in the beginning, I think like anything else, you had to get the buy-in from the more senior guys. But as we went to doing the... Uh, the initial classes up at the uh, Palisades. At Palisades, I think we were getting younger, and I think now, you know, you got to start looking at like who's going to run with this when yes. we're gone, you know. Yes. And I, I think you got a good team. 
Yes, and uh, it all stems from your work. And uh, with Dr. Fader, uh, both he and, and Ben and Hannah have been so generous with their time, and they've helped us more than you could possibly imagine. Chief Ginty, this has been an extraordinary conversation, and uh, on behalf of the LUF team, we certainly want to thank you for your time, your energy, and the contributions that you've made to this endeavor. Thank you, Chief. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you're listening, I'm sure you're in the pursuit of optimal human performance. In that case, you should know, I'm the author of the Leadership Under Fire Senior Man's Performance Journal. This digital journal is sent monthly via email to share human performance content that provokes thought, generates discussion, and fosters self-improvement, both professionally and personally. To receive the LUF Senior Man's Performance Journal, visit leadershipunderfire.com, scroll to the bottom, and enter your email address to join the newsletter. Thank you for listening. The Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit leadership.com.